the Cinema Show, where we bring you movie news, reviews, and insights right here on our podcast. I'm Dylan Martin. Here with me is Jack Song. What's up, guys? How's it going? And the lovely Lori. Hello, hello. And on this episode, we are congratulating and celebrating graduation. We recently had some ceremonies happening in the college and universities, and we're going to be seeing high school graduations pretty soon here. And we decided, well, actually, Lori here had the great idea to talk about our favorite coming-of-age movies. Actually, Lori, you got to walk the stage. Yes, I did. A year. It it felt like a SpongeBob episode, though. It's like one year later. Um, Because I actually graduated in the the midst of the pandemic last May, but they finally had, uh, we finally had the chance to walk the stage and I wasn't going to, but like, you know, my kids were like, no mom, we want to see you set an example for us. I'm like, fine, whatever. (laughs) Well, it was great to see all the colleges and eventually high schools do that for last year's graduation classes. So yeah, we all each here, we brought a movie to talk about, and we brought on a very special guest with us to help us with that discussion. He is the co-creator, the director, writer, producer, and co-star of the web series. You can find that on YouTube. Yikes! We have Chris Olvera. Hello. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the episode, and we'll eventually talk about your pick. I'm very interested what you have to say about your pick. I'm excited. I love this show. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're going to kick it off here with the most recent of our picks. This actually comes from Jackson, Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde, starring Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein. On the eve of their high school graduation, two best friends realize they should have worked less and played more. Determined not to fall short of their peers, the girls try to cram four years of fun into one night. Jackson, this is your movie. Go ahead. Tell us why you love Booksmart. So the first time I'd seen this, I went up to Corpus to have a movie marathon up in in Century 16 all by myself. I went there as soon as the theater opened, and I didn't leave until midnight that night Uh, and one of the movies that I saw that day was Booksmart and it was my favorite movie out of the four that I saw and I fell in love with it instantly Uh, I told you guys about it and I was like you guys have to see this movie Uh, you and Monica went to go see it uh, and I joined y'all that was my second time probably like a week maybe two weeks later and I loved it even more the second time I've seen it probably like three times since then since it's come Mm -hmm. out and I just can't get enough of this movie. I love everything that Olivia Wilde does in her directorial debut, might I add. And it's a ride from start to finish. I relate to the main characters. All I did in high... I mean, I had fun. I hung out with friends. But, I mean, it was mostly studying and everything. And just like, oh, okay. Everyone else got to have arguably more fun. Work less, play more, basically, and so I related to that, and I think that's why I love this movie so much, just because right off the bat, there's that huge relation factor with the two main characters. It's great. There's a bunch of diversity, and like we said with uh, Mitchell's vs. the Machines, it's not really forced down your throat, like, hey, these are minorities. It's just like, hey, it's these characters, and they're this, and it's not really touched upon. It's just it's just part of them, you know? It's, it's so It feels so natural. It feels so modern. It's very... 
it's a very modern coming of age movie. All of the other ones here we're talking about are um, either taking place 50 years ago or were made uh, 40 years ago. So it, this is the most modern coming out and just time frame uh, setting wise. Uh, so I actually switched my pick from The Breakfast Club to this because I this edges it out uh, over Breakfast Club, which is saying a lot. I, I love that movie. I saw it for the first time when I was a freshman. And uh, this is edged out. And I think it's uh, good to have this thrown into the conversation being a modern uh, coming-of-age movie. Yeah, you talk about a cast here. I only mentioned two of them here. But yeah, we have a huge diversity of cast. And of course you would. I mean, I think this takes place in L.A. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So just imagine growing up in an L.A. high school and the pressure that comes with. But Lori... I'm sure you've seen Booksmart. I'm pretty sure we talked about Booksmart back when we were on the radio waves. Walk us through your experience with Booksmart and uh, just overall what you think about it. I have to say, uh, we did talk about it before when we were on the radio show, and I love this movie. Uh, I really appreciate how uh, it really, it was innovative to me because it really showed a different perspective. Uh, I love how there were other movies that, pushed it from a girl's perspective, but this pushed it from a different sexual orientation that girls usually don't have. They don't have that representation. I love how it was unabashedly let girls, you know, it, it, it represented the way they really are. I think in a lot of movies, they tend to keep girls really sweet or they try to keep them pretty and clean. Uh, and I thought the grittiness and the clumsiness of it all, you know, because we really are that way, especially when we are that age. It's an age when we're discovering ourselves and we're discovering our feelings. And why, while we might have, you know, while we might be 18 and we might have a high IQ, our emotional IQ is way down here <laughs> because we just haven't <laughs> lived enough and we're just still discovering ourselves and our feelings and our bodies and our emotions. And, you know, those are just so hard. And you, I love how they had that camaraderie as friends, but at the same time, you know, you do see how they kind of also clash because they're not exactly the same either. Uh, And the whole evolution of it throughout the film, I think it really captured, I think it captured teens and youth and what they're going through today. And I love that. I love that because I'm, you know, we all know that when it comes to the cinema show, I'm a little bit longer in the tooth than everybody. Um, and we've come such a long way. I remember when I was in high school, it was in the nineties. Uh, I was born in the early eighties. I was in high school in the nineties and you were, there were, nobody was out in high school. It was one of the biggest secrets that's, especially in a small town in South Texas, you couldn't talk about it. It was painful to uh not have a heterosexual um if you weren't a heterosexual it was so painful to have an identity because uh it was not only looked down upon but i mean this was the era of conversion camps and i had several friends over the summer who were forced to go to conversion camps and it's heartbreaking uh my best friend in high school was gay And um, a lot of us left as soon as our feet could carry us because of that. It was a completely, we we forget how different of a time the 90s were. Uh, And now I see us here in 2021 and see how far we've come and see the representation. And before we lived in the shadows 
um, you know, LGBTQ and LGBTQ friends and supporters and family, we lived in the shadows. It was, even if you did accept it, even if you were a part of it, it was always something that was, don't ask, don't tell, don't talk about it. I mean, it was the whole policy of that. Uh, and also the 90s, we were coming right off of the Reagan administration and the AIDS epidemic where they were sitting there. I mean, they spent more money on the fight against drugs. I mean, that was the war on drugs. Whenever we had a disease that was out there killing so many people and the government put no funding into that. The only fundraising that was done on that was all through independent fundraisers and benefits and thank God for Princess Diana and everything she did to raise money for that. And so it was a different time and thank God that we're past that time. And I love seeing movies like this. Uh, with this representation yeah i will say this movie really not really broke down barriers but like you said kind of pushed the evolving nature of all these high school tropes you know people starting to come out and be more accepting and people be more comfortable coming out and not only that but the movie itself there's a part that really stuck out to me and it is when beanie feldstein who i think is the valedictorian of her class and she is in the restroom and for some reason there's uh no boys or girls restroom because there's (laughs) you just have a whole collection of people using that restroom but anyways uh she overhears people talking about her and usually in that part of the movie you see her come out and she might just tell them all off and you know walk out being a badass but then the movie turns on her like it it feels like the movie itself kind of turns on her saying well we're all going to prestigious colleges too it's no big deal and i think right there's a turning point for that character and i love that so much because if this movie were to be made like 20 years ago, even you would have that trope of her saying all this stuff about each and every one of those people that were talking about her and she would leave like a badass. But here, no, I, I love how it takes our lead here. Cause I, I feel like she's more of a lead than Caitlin Dever, but I mean, they're, they're both an equal part in this movie, but I love how the movie kind of takes her a notch down in her own movie. Uh, I love that. And it, and it drives the entire movie and her motivation. But Chris, your experience, because I think we're all on board here. It'd be funny if you actually hate this movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's the case, uh, unless you prove me wrong. But yeah, uh, what do you think about Booksmart? Yeah, this movie's fucking great. Um, I remember watching it. Um, I was like in San Antonio around that time. And I was, I went to go watch it like alone by myself, like on a packed, it was like opening night. And I was like, I really hope people come out to this movie because the movie looks awesome. And the reviews were really good, and it just everything looked, looked looked pretty solid on it. And when I showed up, like packed house, like everybody was there to see that movie. And I was like, "This is gonna." Be, I already knew it was gonna be a great experience because it's like, and it's much like how people like the movie theater experience is such a omen by now, where people just don't want to go back to movie theaters. And I understand why, but it's like you just can't get that feeling uh, rather than a movie theater. So when you walk into a movie theater on like a, like an opening night of something. And it's just electric. You feel them. You feel the theater already. It's like you know you're gonna have a good time. And I remember watching Booksmart and just like jolting and like in all the humor and like all the heart, like the heartfelt antics they had inside there. A lot of beautiful moments. Like they didn't really hold back in a lot of different ways. Um, Olivia Wilde. While I can't say I've seen too many things with her, because like the only thing I can say with Olivia Wilde that I like couldn't. instantaneously remember is like her performance in like Tron Legacy which is like not that good of a movie and it's not her fault I'm not saying like Olivia Wilde like ruined that movie because that movie like fucked itself but um (laughs) like and I don't have too much of like a of a a memory of her and like 
Um, but it was cool. It was like, I just feel like I haven't heard about her in like a couple of years. And she comes back, she makes Booksmart. And Booksmart just like kicks so much ass. And I remember a lot of people, uh, specifically men, that were like, I don't want to see it because it looks like super bad with women. And I was like, and how does that not sell you on the movie? Like, what do you mean? And like, <laughs> Um, it has like Jonah Hill's sister in it. Like, is that not a good sell for you? Like, yeah, you know, it was great. And I think there's a lot of like nice soft moments in there. And especially those, those moments like you were talking about the, uh, the bathroom scene where it's like, yeah, like my ranking is not that different from you. And it's like not that far. I, I can't really, I can't really relate to too many of the characters in it, but I completely empathize and like sympathize with them continuously. Cause it's like. I was in high school. High school sucked. I made like really bad grades throughout and I didn't have a good reason to say why I did. I just didn't. And um, seeing these people that are like, I didn't do anything in high school. Like we should do it all tonight. It's just, it's, it's like kind of like classic coming of age trope. You like going towards like porkies or like American pie, that kind of like, well, we got to get all this stuff done. Whoa. Like our high school experience, like the movie blows my mind. Cause it's just, it, as much as it is, because uh, can I say it like pushes the envelope or like does it bring anything new to the table? Not exactly. Like I know it can have a lot of moments where it's like it's kind of like progressive and maybe some of the casting and stuff or like you know because it was it definitely felt like a movie where it's like whoa it's not only white people in this but it, it I would I don't know the number but like it felt very white still and I didn't hate it. I like that it's trying to get a little bit better because there needs to be more people of color because when I went to school, it was like, it was that bishop, so it was like completely people of color. And um, it, it does a lot of, it does a lot of things, not too many original things, but it's still a lot of fun. It's just a super fun movie. And if people don't like it, like, I feel like it's just a personal qualm with either um, <laughs> women or women. So yeah. Again, we're talking about tropes and how they play with them. One part in the movie made me think of Laurie saying uh, crabs in a bucket. And that came with AAA, played by Molly Gordon, who I just, well, several of us recently watched in Shiva Baby. And I love how they play the trope of, oh, slut shaming and how it's gnarly in high school. It's, I think it's, that's where it just peaks. I can't speak for how the collegiate life is <laughs> with that. But uh, yeah, high school is just, a war zone for girls. And I don't know if that's ever going to change. Uh, I, I mean, that's just how it goes. But I really love how Booksmart kind of addressed that and not to judge a book by its cover. Uh, I thought that was great. I, she was one of my favorites. Uh, another one of my favorites, a very small role, but I I just related to him. Well, I shouldn't say that because it was the pizza guy. <laughs> the the valley strangler you should not relate <laughs> I to just him love yeah, how, <laughs> yeah. Uh, i used to deliver that's why but <laughs> i just love how he is <laughs> giving advice to these girls like you can't do that like what what if i just take you out of the middle of nowhere and hog tie you and kill you and like throw specific things and i love the little payoff at the end with him but just little things like that they enter into these weird scenarios uh the yacht little yacht scene which <laughs> billy lord by the way she's great in this movie such a wild card mm -hmm. i love her for that any other minor parts in this movie that stuck out to anybody i just want to mention jared who's the rich kid that keeps on trying to like buy buy his way into like emotional intimacy he's like the saddest character i've seen in a movie in a really long time but also like the most heartwarming character that kid is great like 
the writing on him alone is awesome. Yeah, I love that little moment with him and, oh, what's her name? Is it Molly? Beanie Fieldstein's character. The little moment they have at the party. Oh, Molly. Yeah, the little moment they have at the party where he's like, I want to build airplanes and then I want to make original shit on Broadway. Like, just that moment felt so real. And another part that I love is the the one take, uh, the fight scene that they have. That fight doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere. Like, it's it, it's built up so naturally over the course of the movie and the shit they say to each other. It's like, wow. They've really been holding these this in. You can just tell by the by the way that they fought and, like, everything. The way that they reacted, everything about it was was so good. I, I love that moment so much. A nice touch to that scene where the two best friends blow up at each other at the party is in the background, you see the uh, lights from their phones flashing and they're recording this whole entire scenario, which they don't really, uh, nothing really comes about it. Uh, I just thought it was a nice one take where it kind of goes back and forth between our characters and little by little, you see more and more phones come up to record. The movie doesn't really do anything with that, but uh, I thought it was nice. Can I just make a comment on that? That scene where all the phones come up, I'm constantly talking about that because I grew up in a time before social media when I was like my senior year, senior year, my high school years and the senior graduation parties. My best friend in high school was valedictorian and he was gay. But so it was kind of like the, the characters themselves. I like saw like this weird reversal of character because I was like his friend who was like always around him saying, come on, we need to go and party. We need to do something. And uh, but yeah, I will say that scene where the phones come out is horrifying to me because I can't even imagine how I would have survived today's day and age if that those phones and those cameras were there to capture all of those arguments and those things that I did in high school because they really did it. That's probably why we got to get away with so much more and why there was so much more hazing and so much more things that kids actually got away with doing to each other back then, which probably wasn't that great. But yes, so even just that, even though they didn't end up going anywhere with it, the anxiety of it, I felt. And then I just want to comment on the title, Book Smart. Such a wonderful title because let's face it, when we graduate, when we're, I graduated at 17. When I graduated at 17, I was going off to college and that's about all we were was book smart because God knows we did not know about life. <laughs> we had no clue. And that's about all we had was our book smarts. Question to everybody here. Did anyone get invited to those big graduation parties? Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Uh, me and the valedictorian, we had to show up for the uh, rehearsal for baccalaureate. We were best friends, and we went to this epic uh, senior graduation party where somebody actually got stabbed. Uh, it was out uh, on Chapman Ranch Road as we're going to Corpus. One of my friends lived out there in the little Driscoll community, but it's not exactly Driscoll. You know, it's right off Chapman Ranch, so it's a little yeah. community of itself. Uh, we had three bands there, local bands, like high school bands. We had uh, Monkeys Doing It, we had Freak Star, and we had another band that I forget their name. Uh, and her mom was so cool. They had like this big ranch area. And people started showing up from just like corpus that were starting to hear about the party. So we started getting all sorts of randoms. Me and the valedictorian got really drunk on wine. And they loved it because we were the honors kids. We were the ones who didn't party like really all four years and then senior year we're just like let's go to the graduation parties and they wanted nothing more than to see the valedictorian honors kids drunk off their asses 
they wanted nothing more than to see that because I guess it humanized, you know, some of us. So they got us totally wasted. It, it was insane. And somebody ended up wandering off, got hit over the head with a, a chair. And from what I understand, somebody got stabbed. An ambulance came, you know, it was a whole thing. Um, and then the next day, we had to be at rehearsal for Baccalaureate. And we were wearing our same clothes that we had been wearing the day before at school. And we changed T-shirts. Like, we switched T-shirts. So that way, we were like, okay, nobody will notice. <laughs> and then we didn't even think that we had wine stains down the front of our shirts. We were, t- we were still drunk. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Classic. <laughs> he actually, we actually got drunk right before graduation as well. And he ended up giving his valedictorian speech and at the end of it i mean we're, this is bishop you know uh at the end of it he actually started talking about i bet y'all didn't think this little poor mexican was gonna take your valedictorian spot from all you gringos and then he screamed viva la raza <laughs> so maybe shots before graduation wasn't the best idea that sounds like the best way that could have ended yeah i was about to say that sounds like a great idea what are you talking about yeah i think the cops got called on my big after party, graduation, whatever. So I never got a chance to go. But yeah, it was uh, a <laughs> book smart. I love it. It was still one of my favorites from that year. Can we just talk about how great of a year 2019 was for movies? It was one of the best years that decade, if not the best. Yeah, I know. But specifically 2019, we got like, what, Parasite? 1917, Farewell. Uncut Gems. Oh, yeah. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. Dragged Across Concrete. Me and Jackson had watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the drive-in in New Braunfels. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, what a great moment. And let's keep the theme of female-led coming-of-age films. Well, this came out in 2015. Diary of a Teenage Girl, directed by Marielle Heller, starring Belle Pauli, Alexander Skarsgård, and Kristen Wiig. In 1970s San Francisco... A precocious 15-year-old teen artist embarks on an enthusiastic odyssey, beginning with her mother's current lover. Now, this movie comes from Chris. Yeah, so Diary of a Teenage Girl. um, Did any of you guys, have have any of you seen this movie before? I just watched it an hour before recording. Okay. And you, Jackson? Uh, I had just seen it for the first time yesterday. Okay. You know what? Like, my job here is kind of done. Like, as long as people have seen this movie, that's awesome. Because I, I, I love this movie to pieces. I always talk about this movie whenever I can. And I think about, like, little indie gems that, like, did not get the spotlight. It's always Diary of a Teenage Girl that comes to mind. Or, like, The Fits or something like that. But for coming of age, like, Diary of a Teenage Girl came out in 2015. And it felt like a really tender time for me growing up. Because I was, like, a junior in high school. And I was just, like, so into movies. And I was just, like, literally, like... You know how people go to, like, the record stores and start crate digging for, like, hours trying to find stuff? That was me with film. Like, I was always just trying to find more shit and try to stay really current with it. And, like, uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl came from Ariel Heller. I found out about her because she was married to to uh, Yorma Takoni from uh, The Lonely Island. Uh, he's, he's, like, the shorter one on The Lonely Island. And his wife, like, directed stuff. And I was like, cool, I'm going to look into all of her things. And she had a background in, like, the Chicago theater scene. And so she was an actor that became a director and a writer. And, like, I came from doing community theater that, like, slowly put me into wanting to make film instead because I was like, I just want to have control of everything. And hearing her speak was about the same. She just, like, I just wanted control of everything. I just wanted to do this. And she knew how to act. And, like, she was able to, like, direct actors really well and gives this 
makes this movie that has like one of the best performances from any young actor ever out of Bell Pally. She, she's so good as, as the title role. And like Kristen Wiig plays a really good alcoholic mother inside this. And like Alexander Skarsgård plays like the douchey boyfriend. And Christopher Maloney plays like the angry uh, father. And the whenever I watched this movie, it came to me like something I've never seen before. I was like, I didn't know they can do this. I didn't know a movie could be this like risky and um, how can I say like on PG like it was just something that like if you think of a teen movie it's always like PG-13 or if it's rated R it's rated R because there's like nudity and like people are losing their virginities or people are drinking and this one was like no it's like committing whole fucking affairs with like your mother and like having your sibling semi-involved and having your family go into this whirlwind and like and having come from the background I had with my family and my parents growing up it felt not relatable but sort of like I could see this happening. Like, I could see something like this happening. Like, it was just, it was crazy. And it felt like, it felt like watching that. And it put me into a, a huge spin of other movies. Because I almost chose um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Because that's one of my favorite coming-of-age films as well. Because that deals with heavy topics just as well. Like, how this one deals with affairs and, like, the mass exploration of, like, sexuality and children. Fast Times at Ridgemont High goes all the way into pregnancy and into abortion. And it's like... I watched that. I was like, whoa, I didn't know you could do this either. And they did this like way back when. And this movie does the same thing because it's also like sex in Diary of a Teenage Girl is not showed how sex is in usual films. Can we all agree on that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, because when you see sex in other films, like what a beautiful thing to happen. And in this one, it's like gyrating wet bodies that's done for like, you know, not even for excess or like feeling or enthusiasm or happiness. It's done to be like, that's done now and I'm trying to get this thing out of me to feel better or to feel better about who I am as a person and to like get these things off a list or the mental uh the mental deconstruction that's going to make me feel feel better or maybe a little more human and now that I'm older it's like all these things feel a little more touched upon and feel more feel more based in from the writing and also the art design inside this whole film like whenever it gets into like the graphic art stuff is like really cool but thank you guys for watching it because it's it's my jam. Yeah, and you talk about Marielle Heller. This is actually her first feature film. This is her freshman outing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, oh my God. Just to work with such a talented cast already. And several years later, oh no, a couple, uh, she went on to direct Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which gave Melissa McCarthy, I believe her Golden Globe. I know, I think it was her Oscar nomination. For leading actress. And then uh, she went on to make uh, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers biopic with Tom Hanks. Uh, so the whole time I was watching this, I the one thing that stuck in my mind the whole time is, she's 15! <laughs> the, you, that can be said for any scene in this movie, and it's like, it just adds that much more. I kept thinking about her age the whole time. It's like, oh my god, dude. Alexander Skarsgård plays such a total creep and the way that this movie portrays the manipulation and the way that it like emphasizes that with the whole, uh, oh, what's her name? The Stockholm Syndrome. Patty Hearst. Patty Hearst. Yeah. How they like frame that with Patty Hearst and like there's a comment like who can fall in love with their kidnapper and then the movie just does that and it does it right under your nose until you think about it. It's like 
Oh my god. And just everything that she's going through, especially the setting for this movie, the 70s, the sexual revolution, having that looming over this whole journey that she's going through. She's 15 years old, and she's having sex with a 35-year-old man who's her mom's boyfriend. And, oh my god, dude. And and the way that she explores sex throughout the rest of the movie, and how, it conf- how her mother uh, and how the adults in this movie deal with that. What a movie. I, d- I didn't expect it going into it. Yeah, if it, this movie didn't take place in the 1970s and in San Francisco, <laughs> this thing would be coming out of a Jerry Springer episode. <laughs> <laughs> and Lori, I think me and Lori are on the same boat with this movie. <laughs> it caught me off by surprise. I think I was expecting a movie like, let's say, Eighth Grade or even Lady Bird. But no, I, I like that you mentioned, Chris, how... Uh, sex in this movie isn't displayed as romanticized or uh, even like fast times how even though they are kids and there's some awkward sex scenes in that movie it's still a little bit uh glossy a little too nice we're here even the lead here uh, her body type she's not really comfortable with it that exploration in the movie uh, I liked but oof, um, <laughs> I don't know I just felt really um really uncomfortable watching this movie throughout and i don't know Lori, uh how did you feel are you ready (laughs) of course this movie pissed me off (laughs) i was irate by the end of it okay first of all this was a sexual predator who statutory raped a girl there's rape going on throughout this entire movie okay one two The same reasons, I love that you mentioned Fast Times at Ridgemont High, because I love that movie. It it kind of has the same thing, because the girl in it was 15 years old also in Fast Times at Ridgemont High when she was losing her virginity to a much older man. I love it when they're in the dugout, and it's like, she's gotta be somebody's baby. Love it. But the one thing that that had, even though it was far before this movie, was realistic consequences. And this had none of it. This was one of the most unrealistic movies I had ever seen. Because there was this, okay, first of all, let's talk about Kristen Wiig, okay? The self-destructive, self, all self-consuming apple does not fall far from the tree. Uh, And it's true, when we're parents and we have children, all of our neuroses and all of our issues we, that we haven't dealt with, that we're still carrying within us, we just, like, like our eyes and our hair color, we just transfer them right onto our children. Having a child is one of the most narcissistic things you can do. Let me just say that. So, Kristen Wiig comes in, this self-deprecating, she's not an alcoholic, she's a drug addict. She's an addict, period. All right, whatever's gonna make her feel good will make her feel good. It is the sexual revolution, it's post 60s, we're in the 70s. But can we talk about the fact that this is also the, whenever birth control came into play and nowhere in the film is that mentioned. There is no kind of pushing for safe sex. And the entire time I'm wondering how has she, how did she, by the end of the movie I'm like, how did she get through this whole thing without getting fucking pregnant? Because guess what? In real life, she would have. And that wouldn't have been such a neat little package wrapped up in a bow at the end. And so in all of those ways, it angered me. I was so angry throughout the whole movie. And I think it also hits on, 
it has to, it's not only that I'm a mom, because I thought about that. And I was like, is it because I'm a mom of young girls? No, it's not just that. It's because I remember being a young girl myself. And when you're 15, 16 years old, you think that you're an adult. You want to be perceived as you're an adult. Now that I am an adult, I'm like, I was a fucking kid who was being taken advantage of. And being too frightened and being too scared to say anything because we think we're an adult. And for some reason, we think that we're the ones who made the whole thing happen. And I got really pissed off when Kristen Wiig was confronting her daughter saying, who made the first move? It was you, wasn't it? I'm like, there, there you go perpetuating the fact you're victim blaming because I'm sorry, but anybody under the age of 17 does not have the right to consent. Even if you think you're an adult, even if you think you have the right to consent. And these are repercussions. I have friends who, who were preyed upon by teachers and by older people their throughout the entire high school experience. And years later, in hindsight, after you've gone through so many years of psychotherapy, you realize, oh wow, that was really fucked up. And wow, I was really in no place to make those decisions. Because we are, we have this IQ. I go back to the actual IQ and emotional. It's there, there's intellectual IQ and emotional IQ. We mature very quickly and we're learning so much. We're at school every day and our intellectual IQ goes up, 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 up. And we want to be adults so bad, but our emotional IQ is down here. And then the fact that by the end of the movie, like there's absolutely no lifelong repercussions for any of this. Uh, it's just all tied up in this nice little bow. And I'm like, I was livid. Now, as far as the actors, I think they play great roles. I think there were amazing actors in it. I love the directing. I love the graphics. It, it was really weird because it was like this really R-rated version of Diary of a Wimpy Kid because Diary of a Wimpy Kid brings in all these graphics where he's drawing and it was almost the same pres uh, the same concept and the same presence of that, of course, on a more advanced, a more dark, a more sexual level, but it was, you know, same concept, but I really did enjoy it. But as far as everything else in it, oh my gosh, even at one point, they, they put it all on her throughout the whole movie, this 15-year-old girl. Even the guy at one point looks at her and says, you're manipulating me. I'm just like, I hate that. I hate that they put it on her, that she was making all these decisions. She was 15. Yes. But, like, I don't think the movie does that, like, on accident. I The movie is doing that to make a statement about everything. They're putting all of this on this 15-year-old girl, and uh, it just what 15-year-old girls had to go through at that time, in those times. And uh, while well, I do uh, don't like that, I agree with you on that. I don't like that uh, Alexander Skarsgård's character, Monroe, uh, I don't like that he gets off scot-free, kind of. And I felt like Kristen Wiig let her daughter down in that regard by not turning him into the authorities or something. By not stabbing him in the neck. Or turning him into the authority. <laughs> yeah. Come on. She was a she was a loose she was a loose cannon herself. But what did she do at the very end? Is she punishing him? No, because this old pervert would love. Are you kidding? He's on his way out. His dreams. He's already on the other side of his dreams going into decline. And they see this young, vivacious, talented, naive person that makes them feel big and makes them feel young and he's like we can go sailing on a boat together no he would have loved it if he would have been forced into a marriage with her of course he would have and then she i that's the one part i did love that when she's sitting there and he finally tells her he loves her and she's like and that's the last thing i wanted that was accurate that was real 
But yeah. everything else, even to the point where his mom, even that, she's punishing the daughter. She's not punishing him when she's like, oh, well, I got married around your age and now you're going to marry him. Again, it's more, it's putting all of the blame on her. Like she's this Lolita, like she asked for it, like she constructed and construed this whole thing. There is no way that a 15 year old girl, even though we think we have the emotional capacity and even though we think that's what we want, that's the thing we don't know. It's such a confusing time with hormones and virginity. So I was right there with those hormones and those raging things. And I'm gonna tell you what, it doesn't, I, I didn't see a single mention of birth control in there. I didn't see a single condom come out. And I was just like, no, I'm sorry. I mean, that's reality. I had, I had maybe six or seven friends who graduated high school with newborns. That's reality. There, are, there is consequences to these actions that are much more than, oh, well, he doesn't love me. And oh, I got into a fight with my mom, but everything, but that's okay because it's all going to be okay now. No, no, that's not, that's not real. So I'm going to say, first off, sorry. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I stirred the pot maybe a little too no, heavy no, no, on the no, first no, go. No, no. But, no, no, no. Um, but I will say that I kind of see, Jackson, what you're trying to say. And one of, one of my favorite things about these movies is like, about this movie for sure, is that every character is horrible, including Belle Pally. Like every character is not the perfect person. And like when it comes to these aspects of like, well, they didn't mention this, they didn't mention this, you know, they didn't mention like, um, you know, ABC and all that, all the other shit. It's just like, um, the movie kind of lives in the moment. And that's one of my favorite things about the film is that it lives in the moment. And it's sort of like, this is happening. This is happening. And like, I kind of relate to like, to her relationship with her mother in some aspects. when I watched it. Cause it was like, cause, um, some people aren't meant to have children and that's like the truth. And you see how the mom reacts with the daughter throughout the entire film. And it's like horrible. Cause it's like, you want to be there and be like, be a good parent. And you want to tell fucking Monroe to be like, you're a fucking psychopath. Like you are a sociopath and you are using this child for your own good and it's horrible. And as the story continues and like pushes forward throughout, my only thought process is like of this girl and how she's just like navigating the best she can through this. And when the movie kind of like ends with like no consequence and all these things, to me it was like, I know about a lot of fa family experiences and you know, you had your experience as well. And I think... I know a lot of friends, a lot of family members that have gone through stuff like this and nothing happens at the end. And it's simply like these people just take it as like a lesson and it's horrible. And whenever the movie finished for me and she kind of like was able to obtain to be like, this is how I see love. This is how I see romanticism. This is how I see I need to guide my life. And that was the coming of age part to me where it was sort of like she went through these, these trials and errors and these, these like tribulations and this one man and her mother's like gaze and her father's gaze as well. And she's like growing more and more upon it to be like, this is not how I need to lead my life. And this is where it needs to go. And maybe some things that I did get from it, like is really gonna help me in the long run. But um, along with that and like the animation style throughout, it gives like a mystical, fantastical version of what we kind of wish we had in some way to be like, this was her outlet and we get to see it be expressed so heavily because our outlets are so different each one of us i would expect you know what i mean like we all do something that really helps us and um when you see that throughout it kind of gives you this breath of fresh air to be like she she does know how to express herself she just can't do it perfectly yet because of her age now unlike promising young woman we talked about showing that movie in health class maybe show this movie in health class but have a have me there no, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Lori, just come in, pause it, like, all right, pause. This is where this person went wrong. Yeah, let, let's take this all in. 
<laughs> yeah, whereas opposed to Promising Young Woman and other movies, uh, you could just play the whole way through. I think Diary of a Teenage Girl needs a little bit more context when it comes to being educational. Maybe that was the intention of the director to bring out those emotions for some people, kind of like how you had, Lori, especially with your perspective and your past experiences. I, I totally get that. If only Kristen Wiig had just told uh, Missy, no, Minnie. Minnie. If only she had told Minnie that she is loved and she don't need no man. But I get it. I mean, I know families where the mother will choose a man over her kids. It's just devastating and how they become victims and how much trauma they go through. Aside from that, like, because I, I kind of agree with uh, Lori with her criticisms as well. Um, and also it's uh, what works for the movie, uh, like the cast, the setting of it all. Uh, I think it was appropriate. I, I don't think I, I, I'm pretty sure things happen like this now. I mean, because we all come from different types of families and there's many more out there. But I like the aesthetic of the 70s. It's always nice to <laughs> look back and not on these circumstances, but. Oh, it's beautifully shot throughout. Beautifully shot. And can I say the soundtrack? There are not many soundtracks where I hear Nico. And Nico is one of the songs that was played towards the end. And if anybody knows her, I'm a huge fan. She was part of the Velvet Underground, mm. Lou Reed. And she was, uh, um, <laughs> she, uh, during the Holocaust, she's a Holocaust survivor, but she wasn't on that side. She was actually, Nico was actually uh, anti-Semitic. She was on, she was part of the Nazi children's regime that was being raised, right? So she uh, came over here into the United States. She moved to New York with her family. She ended up growing up, getting into the poetry scene, getting into the Lou Reed scene. And her, uh, she has this very deep Hungarian, you know, uh, Wes Anderson likes to use her a lot in his soundtracks. Uh, she was very, her songs were very prevalent on the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, but anyway, uh, I heard her song towards the end and that actually, like, there were a lot of little gems, though, that kept this movie endearing to me. Uh, and that was one of them, because she was a very tormented soul herself, and she ended up dying of a heroin overdose. Um, but yeah, she was part of the Velvet Underground. She went through a lot, uh, Lou Reed, all this other stuff. And when her song came in towards the end of the movie, um, I, I do agree, though, for all of the things that I have a problem with it in, uh, it was in the moment it probably wasn't the intention that's not what they wanted to do that's not the story they wanted to tell um but you know it's like the same reason i hate all ron howard films i hate how he takes biopics and he makes them all pretty and shiny oh let's make a beautiful mind but let's not in reference the fact that he actually had a homosexual relationship with his imaginary roommate or the fact that uh later on it was said that he was that little girl who used to come to him in his fantasies, he used his wife used to catch him, you know, imaginary touching her and things like that. He had a lot of issues besides, but they're like, we're gonna do a beautiful mind with Russell Crowe and we're just gonna gloss all over that. And you know me, I would rather have the honesty, the grit. I, I kind of like to see things a little dirty. I don't like to see things cleaned up. Yeah, I think yeah. if there is something that just to move on to the next film. But, like, um, just to definitely the thing <laughs> that I took out of it in, like, 2015 when I watched it was that it was a movie that was unafraid. 
And I think like if you're like a writer or a creator or something, it shows you just like, you know, that's not my story to tell because this is definitely not my story to tell. This is somebody else's story to tell. And it seems very personal to them. Like as you watch it, it's just like, you know, like Call Me By Your Name or like, you know, Moonlight. It's kind of like films that take, that don't have an, an orthodox or like correct way because already like those bases on those movies, movies are always going to be like, oh, this is problematic. This is going here. This is going there. But it didn't matter to them. They still showed that story and you're able to gather what you can from it. It's almost like they throw the Legos on, on the floor and they're like, now build the house that you want. And for Diary of a Teenage Girl, it was just a very like unafraid film to be like, there's a crazy thing that's happening. There's a crazy story. You can take a lot that you can from it. You might not like all of it, but even with that, like, don't be afraid to tell that story, to tell this like crazy story and gather what you can. And just especially at the age that I saw it, it was like very tender to me and I was like, wow, shit. I took a lot from it, explored a lot from it, and now still like right inside a lot of the ways that they do in it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that film with us, Chris. We appreciate it. And speaking of destructive family ties, we're going to talk about Lori's next movie, Stand By Me, came out in 1986, directed by Rob Reiner, starring Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell. In the summer of 1959 in Castle Rock, Maine, which is not a real place, four 12-year-old friends set off on an adventure after learning of the location of a local boy who has been missing for several days. Just a lark at first, the boy's journey evolves into a defining event in their lives. Lori, this is your pick. Lead us in. Take us on a journey. Okay, gentlemen. This was actually really hard for me. I almost chose Almost Famous mm. because, oh gosh, just the whole obsession with, with you know, music, that, that played very big into my childhood, and I love that era. Um, but I ultimately had to go with Stand By Me. And I think when it comes to this, I, I think... Um, I even surprised myself because I was thinking, man, Lori, maybe you should, you know, pick something a little bit like something from a female perspective. But I don't know. Uh, I think that this kind of goes past uh, gender boundaries for me. I think you can relate to it either way. And I, I love how uh, there's a, a really great movie will resonate, you know, and, and it's not just a guy's movie. This is really a coming of age movie to me. I love that, that they're 12. I love that it's between them going from elementary into junior high. So they're leaving childhood going into adolescence. Um, and uh, yeah, Castle Rock, of course, uh, that's uh, one of the big uh, locations that Stephen King, who wrote the novella that this is movie's based on called The Body. Um, and, and it's that small town atmosphere, and that's what really gets me about it too, because I grew up in a small town. Um, Rob Reiner, also known as Meathead from All in the Family, uh, came out and directed this movie. Uh, he was really adamant when he directed this movie to pick children who were the actual age of the characters, which is unheard of nowadays. Everybody is like, oh, you're 20, but you're going to play this 15-year-old, or you're this age, and you're going to play this 17-year-old. All of these kids were 12. They had a really hard time casting them because Rob Reiner was really trying to find kids who fit their characters. Um, the hardest one to cast, uh, I don't know, the, of course it's the four boys, the hardest one to cast was Corey Feldman's character because he has to have so much, he's a child of abuse, his father fought in the war, he had post-traumatic stress. 
Um, he, he was very physically, mentally abusive towards him. And so this kid had to have a lot of angst and anger. And later on, years down the road, we find out that Corey Feldman was very physically abused and had a lot of emotional abuse and sexual abuse. So when they found him to play the role, uh, he fit right in. Uh, and a lot of it was so real. Uh, they say that Phoenix had to protect uh, Will during the shoot because they said that Corey Feldman was so nasty to him offset. He bullied him so viciously. Uh, that he was scared to come back to set some days and that River Phoenix actually uh, had a confrontation with him about it. So all of these, then that, that's what they said. They said all of these boys were very much like the characters that they played and just brilliant casting along that side. Um, I love how the boys are all diff dealing with different things. Um, and it, it goes back to that central theme of you can't choose who your family is. And then... Having a family in a having a family that everybody knows in a small town, when you're a kid walking around town and they know your family, they assume they know you. They assume all of those preconceived notions are thrust upon you, um, and, and we see that in in four different forms. There's not a single character in this movie that you can't relate to. Of course, you have the character of Vern. You know who's that? You know he's grandma's boy. You know he. Feelings. He can't find his penny jar, you know, they're always kind of mad at him. But, uh, you know, of course, he's the one who comes to them with the information, you know, about where the body is. You have the character of uh, Corey Feldman. And, oh, gosh, I, I just, I know all their names, but for some reason they're eluding me right now. Uh, but Corey no, Feldman. Will, Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton plays Gordy. Yeah, he plays Gordy. Uh, River Chris plays Chris. is River Phoenix. Uh, and Corey Feldman, what's his character's name? Teddy. 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 Oh my gosh. He hides, you know, all of those kids who were the class clowns and who kind of had that bravado, um, were always kind of making up for something that was going on underneath the surface. Like, hey, don't pay attention to all these problems that I have. But they were also always kind of the ones who had the shortest fuses and who could turn on a dime. Uh, and I, I just thought that inner rage and that inner turmoil was just perfectly played. Um, you had Chris's character. He came from an alcoholic father and alcoholic brothers, and everybody just assumed he was going to be an alcoholic himself. Uh, but he was so different. And then, of course, you had Gordy, who uh, had to deal with parents uh, who had just lost an older son, and he was kind of invisible. He said, I was an invisible boy that summer. Um, Everything about it is just so identifiable to me. All of the characters, Gordy's character himself, um, I get that. When you're feeling a little bit different, uh, when you have those older siblings who kind of seem to be the apple of the eye, and then, of course, something horrific happens, and he just always feels like he's not measuring up. And I love how the character of Chris comes in and says, no, your father doesn't hate you. Because he's like, my father hates me. My father hates me. I think we've all related to that. I think we've all related to, I, I'm a disappointment. Um, you can always kind of feel it, you know, that disappointment. And, and you think it's you, you know, just the same way like a kid thinks that they're the reason their parents get divorced. You know, I wasn't good enough. I, 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 you know, I, I was too loud. I was too noisy. I frustrated them. So it made them fight, and that's why they divorced. I don't know a single kid who doesn't in some way have that subconscious thought that it was my fault. 
when I was 12, I remember having those three friends. We were a group of four. We called ourselves, we had an improv group and we were called the Four Fabulous Females. And we're like, <laughs> but we, we, we always were to FFF. So like, who are y'all? We'd always go. <laughs> <laughs> and we always picked my friend who lived out in the ranch, out at Chapman Ranch, because her parents would go out all the time and they wouldn't keep a very close eye on us. And I had those talks with them, you know, while we were smoking a cigarette saying, oh, yeah, this is best after dinner, you know. And we thought that, you know, we were grown up and we had those conversations. And at 12 years old, there's so much. It's such a hard time because we're, we're brought up in a, a big culture, especially the Hispanic culture. Children are meant to be seen and not heard. And we're almost invisible. And I think that's why we end up hearing, overhearing so much going on, you know, between our parents. But at the same time, you know, that's why we, we crave that attention so much. And we end up finding that in our friends because they're the only ones who kind of understand what we're going through. And, uh, you know, I, I love how they're sitting there and they're like, yeah, your friends know you better than your family does. And they, they go on such a personal journey together, you know, going on this adventure and trying to find this body, eventually getting there. And this dead body represents the death of their childhood. And they're going into adolescence uh, and everything's going to change. And inevitably, at the end of the movie, it does. And they say, you know, he says, we ended up going into school and they became two more, you know, some of us became two more faces that were just random faces in the hallways. And then later on, you know, uh, of course, Gordy's character becomes a writer. And the whole reason he's writing this short story, we see at the beginning that his friend, Chris, has just died. And we learn at the end, you know, what happens to all of them. Of course, Vern's character ends up just being a truck driver in a small town, having four kids getting married. He lives the perfect little, you know, bubble life, you know, little boxes on a hillside made of ticky tacky. And uh, he becomes that, which we kind of knew he was. We see, you know, uh, Corey Feldman's character, we see Teddy, and he kind of becomes a, a fuck up. And he does some prison time and he works odd jobs and he never quite got it together. Um, but then we see Chris's character and he, became a, he becomes a lawyer and he, he becomes a success and he makes it. And three days ago he was in line and two guys get into a knife fight and he tried to stop the fight and got stabbed in the neck and died almost instantly. You know, in such a waste, you know, and, and then to have, you know, the sole character of Gordy being the only one to tell the story. And there's nothing like that final line of, even though he hadn't seen him in over 10 years, he knows he'll miss him forever. Um, I've never again had friends like I did when I was 12 years old. Jesus, do any of us? What a simpler time when you could just go for a nice game of mailbox baseball before it was a federal crime. <laughs> oh my gosh, and that's the other thing I resonate with is the bullying, because back in those days, and I, I actually, speaking another coming of age movie, Dazed and Confused, yeah. when I was in high school, uh, yeah, the teachers and everybody around here so completely supported hazing. We would get hazed at summer <laughs> band, they chased us in cars down the street, they stole our clothes, we had to run home in our underwear, and people around Bishop laughed. This is not something that happens anymore. <laughs> but back then, it was considered a rite of passage to be bullied. And that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> 
so so I do I get it in that sense you know and and, and I don't know it, it, it just it really hits home with me and you know actually two years ago uh, one of the fabulous four she actually was a teacher out at uh, H&M King she was a math teacher and uh, her name is Sheila Slaughter uh, and she passed away of cancer and she was the first one out of our group of four to pass away and I hadn't hung out with her since we were in high school because uh, when we went to college the us four friends who were inseparable things just started happening I think there was that first five or six years after we graduated where we would attempt to get together but after that people just start fading away and we live our own lives and life happens. But when she died, I swear, I felt like that 12 year old girl again. And it was amazing because I hadn't gotten a phone call from my two other friends who were part of our group. I haven't heard from them in years. All of a sudden, all of our phones started going off because we reached out to each other. And it was one of those things. I think we just all were 12 years old again and our friend died. And we were right back there, even though we hadn't spoken in years. I've had my experience with this movie as a kid, but I was in that weird uh, stage of my life where I was consumed with watching Sandlot and The Goonies over and over again. And this movie, though I did watch it several times, it wasn't the most watched one for a reason. It was rated R, so I don't know why I had it in my possession in the first place. But I guess it just wasn't as fun as I thought it was as a kid. So revisiting it now at this point in my life, uh, yeah, it, it resonated so much. I, I think for me, I was gravitating towards River Phoenix and how his, all he has going for him is his family legacy. And I love where he just breaks down with Gordy uh, when, the, when the rest are sleeping and he kind of just breaks down and he's the leader of the group. And here he is bawling his eyes out, scared of what he would just be for the rest of his life you know he he says even if i didn't steal what they accused me of stealing of it doesn't matter they're, they're gonna see me for what i am and that's all i'll ever be and uh, that one just resonates with me so much especially when he stands up for himself at the end against the bully you know he says you're gonna have to kill me if you want to get this body and uh, i just admire that and river phoenix's performance is just i mean he's 12 years old and it's a risk with child actors. You never know what you might get. And I think River Phoenix, along with the others, I, I think all four of these kids at that time, it was just a perfect cast through and through. And Corey Feldman had a great decade. I mean, I think two years before this, it was Gremlins and then Goonies, then this movie. And I think the next year was The Lost Boys, a little reunion with Keith Sutherland. But anyways, Jackson, you... Watched this for the first time, actually. Yeah, I had never seen this growing up. I'd always heard about it, like, oh, Stand By Me, Stand By Me. But I always I always thought, like, I always heard that it was good, but I never expected what I wound up watching. I didn't, uh, knowing, I knew it was a Stephen King film, and uh, I was like, how is there going to be, like, Stephen King horror with these four boys? And there's not really any of that. It's just a deeply, deeply poetic story about, being 12 years old and growing up and becoming a teenager and like everything that these kids are going through it you feel for every single one of these characters it there's so much trauma with all four of them and there there's so much to these characters and 
like y'all have said, the way this cast played him couldn't have been more perfect of a cast. It, the way that the story just plays out and the and the way the movie ends, you know, you have uh this the two you have uh Teddy and Vern saying goodbye and then uh Gordy and Chris go off and say goodbye to each other and then Chris just kinda fades off of the screen, just kinda like how he fades out of faded out of life. We weren't expecting it we were ex- like we knew we were gonna die, but like we didn't expect it like that. We didn't expect Chris to die being stabbed in the throat on the spot, trying to break up a fight, and he's removed from the frame. Just kind of he just dissolves from the frame, and just the the editing in the last five minutes of the movie is is perfect. And we go from that that fade the narration, just a quick hard cut thirty years in the future. We jump thirty years. And the writer's all grown up. Gordy's all grown up. And we slowly just fade away from... It's not slowly fade. We just go from having narration to just characters blinking on a screen. And that's just the way the movie ends. And that's why the ending is just so impactful. It's just so... It's a whirlwind in those last five minutes. Especially after the long emotional journey that these boys had gone through. Growing up and everything. It's... I didn't expect it, but I'm so glad that I finally sat down to watch it and definitely showing my kids this. Everyone needs to see this when they're 10, 12 years old. Yeah, it's crazy how Gordy turns into Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just thought that was the most astounding part. And also the brother played by John Cusack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I love just the little characterization, how he always stood up for him. That dinner scene where uh, he's like, hey, Gordy wrote a story and uh, the parents aren't talking about it the parents are getting in a fight with each other like say you bring up a girl and then he gets distracted they're the parents are fighting and then the brother is looking out for me like hey i thought your story was great i loved it and you see just this movie is so personal and it's just so raw and you feel everything that these characters are saying and going through Every, everything just feels so genuine Oh my gosh, it, it really pulls at your heartstrings when you just really stop and think about what these characters are going through. And they're 12 years old, too. And then they're going to see a kid their age who's dead. They're going to find his dead body. And at first, they're like, we're going to be heroes. We're going to find this dead kid. Uh, we're going to be on the news. Vern brings a comb <laughs> so that way their hair looks good for on TV. And he winds up losing that. They almost die running from the train. They almost wind up dead kids themselves out in the middle of nowhere. And it's so poetic. Every You could write an essay about everything in this movie. It, it's so good. It's so well executed. It, it's perfect. Nothing like a good smoke after a meal. If Stand By Me were to be remade right now by A24, it would like make like so many Oscars or whatever. Like it's just, it, it's, <laughs> it's a timeless story. Like, and I feel like it feels like do you ever think about things and you're like, why isn't there a story like this? And then you like think, and then you find the movie and like stand by me is always that movie. <laughs> like it's just, it's like, it's just always that story. Like it's like the, it's kind of like the thing that always, you always kind of go back to in some way where it's like, what if there's like a story about a group of kids like do this thing. And it's just like, it's always stand by me that, go, that it goes back to. And uh, yeah, it's just like, it's a great exploration of adolescence and not like the type of PG way that like theaters were really used to at that time. Like they were, because um, when was this made? 86, right? So if it's 86, you know, there was like a lot of teenagers doing some crazy stuff in films or there was like the sex comedies or there was this and that. I'm like, oh, children could be crazy, but 12-year-olds being crazy was like not normal. 
And when you watch Stand By Me, it's like, oh, it's getting deeper. It's getting darker, thankfully, to, like, Stephen King. I'm a big Stephen King fan. So, like, all the shit he did with this Italian family, because the Italian family, like, owns all of his rights of, like, all of his movies ever from, like, the 70s to, like, the early 2000s. And they weren't making a lot of good things. Like, a lot of them were just, like, one after another after another. Like, for every good Stephen King film, there's, like, two or three bad ones. And this one is one of the ones they got right. And Rob Reiner, if anything, is, like, an endearing director. Like, he did, like, five great films back-to-back. He, like, started with, like, Stand By Me. Before that, he did, like, Spinal Tap a couple years prior. But, like, he did five great films back-to-back. It was, like, Stand By Me, like, Misery, A Few Good Men, um... What else? I'm thinking of... I, I just had it here. A Princess Bride was another one. And it's like, yeah, he just like... Oh, and When Harry Met Sally, which is like probably my favorite oh my Rob Reiner film. So like, first off, an amazing catalog for the director. And for him to like start off a Stand By Me is, is, is great. And all, all the actors inside it, like especially especially Corey Feldman, gets should get a lot of love. And kind of see where he is now like in life. It's like, oh man, like being a child actor like sucks. And you already think about like... Because I think all... Like, I don't know how you guys really met was it like through acting and through like theater stuff and like yeah. through you know mm-hmm. and like when you're an actor you kind of you are if you don't do it by now you learn shortly in the future that you have to give everything to acting and to put your whole fucking body into it and like to make a child do that is very hard alone and to derive these performances like Lori was saying earlier is like it's a lot it takes a lot out of a person and it's casted so beautifully that you believe every single person, every single emotion, every single uh, style or frame. And I don't know, it, it feels like a framework that's like long lost by now. You don't see films like the way they were made in, inside the story. And uh, it's just, I'm very thankful for everything inside the film because I, I didn't exactly rewatch it before we did this, but it's something that does stick with me. It's a story that sticks with me and how we're talking about it right now. It's like, man, I really need to rewatch that movie because I... Because now thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, that was a rated R movie. Because I never thought of it as a rated R movie. I was like, that's a family film. <laughs> and like, <laughs> then I was like, yeah. And I was looking into the movie like a couple days ago whenever Jackson sent me the list of everybody's films. And I was like, this is a Stephen King story. I never think about I never think about the body that way. Because I'm pretty sure Stand By Me was written as a novella. Like, and this was like pre-super drug shit with like Stephen King. And you could see the framework of what he does in Stand By Me, and he like uses it a lot in different stories, whether he ages it up to adults, whether he uses children again for like it, and then he stops doing shit with children for a while because he should not be doing them. <laughs> Especially if, you, if you've read it. If you've, if you've read it, and that movie was all, I mean, like that book when I was younger was like, this is insane. I can't wait to read everything else. Like, and, uh, but as I'm older, it's like, yeah, this guy should not write anything else ever again. I love Stephen King. <laughs> and this story is like a testament of how much he could bounce back and forth into these genres, into these ideas, into the horror, into the dread, and how amazing Rob Reiner did at like replicating all of those emotions and continuously keeping the ball rolling and making these people interesting without losing the notion that you would usually be able to get away with through a book because you're able to like imagine it in so many different ways. And the movie gives you an absolute version of it that's not disappointing. That's actually quite uplifting for the characters, and especially when it gets to the ending of it all. It's like a fulfilling story. Yeah, I had always admired Rob Reiner as a director, but after doing some research, I now admire him as a producer as well. Because due to Stand by Me having such a a great performance at the box office and the critical response to it, 
he actually made Castle Rock Productions because of Stand By Me. And like you said, Rob Reiner and Stephen King had such a great relationship afterwards. His production, Castle Rock Productions, they went on to make movies uh, like based off Stephen King books like Misery, uh, The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption. And also he went on to direct, through his production company, A Few Good Men, which was Sorkin's first screenplay. So he did a lot of theater before, but A Few Good Men was his which A Few Good Men is originally a, a stage production, but it's crazy how like a domino effect happened with Stand By Me and what Rob Reiner got to do. And also, just a little a little bit uh, of a nugget here, Castle Rock Productions also is responsible for Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. So it was great. Like I just like to think about like what if Stand By Me, the movie, what if it never happened? You know, what, what if we, w- we would have never got castle rock productions and we would have never received these great films and tv shows i thought that was cool this, this huge piece of entertainment would be lost mm-hmm. stephen king has gone on record to say that stand by me is like the most true adaptation of any of his work that anyone's ever done like if there's a the best movie adaptation of any piece of his work it's this and i completely see why an interview with rob reiner he even said that stephen king talk to him saying you did things in the movie that I wish I would have thought of when writing the book and Rob Reiner said that was like one of the biggest compliments he's ever received and this is something that I resonated with when I watched it when we were watching the part where Corey Feldman's character gets so angry about them calling his father a loony the junkyard guy calls his father a loony and it make the Gordy later makes a comment saying I don't know why Teddy got so angry for a man who had tried to kill, who had almost very near killed him, for him to have gotten so defensive of him. And that one always hit me so hard because I can't, you know, of course, alcoholism, you know, ran, you know, in my family and my father struggled with it when I was young. And there was an incident where, um, a sheriff came, the sheriff from the town came and it was a domestic violence call. And he sat there. I was a little girl. I was probably about five years old, but I'll never forget it. It's burned in my memory. And, uh, he turned to me, his name was Sheriff Mayberry. And he turned to me and he was just like, well, little girl, your mom is not going to press charges. He's like, and that's a big mistake because one of these days your father's going to kill you. And I remember looking up at that man and hating him so much because that was my dad. And Mm. a few years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, uh, I saw his obituary in the paper. And it was a really big obituary because he was law enforcement, he was sheriff. And I remember there was like all of this great, you know, everything he had done, which he had, you know, and, but I remember seeing it, reading it in my head, I said, good, he's dead. Because I don't think that ever leaves you. When somebody insults somebody that you love so much, you know, it's kind of like one of those, like, you don't talk about my family. You don't talk about it. And it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any rhyme or reason. You know, our, no parent is perfect. And despite their imperfections, you always love them. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that documentary uh, of Gabriel Fernandez. Hernandez. Oh. Yeah, where his his one of his last days, it was... Mother's Day, and he had made a card for his mom, and they took pictures at school, and he was beaten badly. You could see the bruises in the picture. 
but knowing that he passed still loving his mother even though all the cruel things he she did to him um it, it yeah it, it's one of those things where you're gonna love your parents no matter what you know like that's some like so i know some people say like parents will always love their kids more than the other way around but sometimes it's hard to believe when someone like gabriel loved his mother even through hell and it goes back to stand by me here with uh will and the passing of his brother and even in his dreams he hears his dad saying it should have been you and this movie i again rewatching it now it just opened my eyes to how how impactful us grown-ups especially parents are to their kids and how things will stick with you to the end and to know what kind of relationship he had with his father and for his older brother to leave that just must be so devastating and how alone he must have felt it was bad enough that his parents were praising his brother while he was alive but knowing that he's passed and there's no one there to support will it was a lot and i think in the funeral scene you don't see him really like show any emotions but it's somewhere throughout the journey where he it's where he fires that gun and that's that's where you see him become a man and come to terms with his brother's death i think he was holding on that for so long and it was just so moving to see a kid like that make that jump into not even adulthood just being grown up i know all the rest of these movies we talk about like uh, teenagers and all this but kids from ado- you know going through adolescence they grow up just as much if not more that's a huge leap from going from being a child to becoming the teenager uh, i think that's a very scary jump that all of us have to make yeah i would consider this movie to be the greatest coming of age movie of them all even though i love the movie we're about to talk about we talked about 2019 being a great year for films, but also this same year, 1986, my pick for coming-of-age movies came out. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, directed by, I mean, the king of all coming-of-age movies, or directors, uh, John Hughes, starring Matthew Broadwick, Alan Ruck, and Mia Sarah. High school student Ferris Bueller wants a day off. From school and develops an incredibly sophisticated plan to pull it off. After talking to his best friend into borrowing his father's prized car and breaking his girlfriend out of class, the young trio head into Chicago for the day. What do I begin with this movie? I discovered this movie, I want to say, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, and was probably the greatest and worst mistake of my life because <laughs> I, I just built my entire persona. <laughs> off of Ferris Bueller where I thought I could run the show (laughs) and great memories came out of it and also bad decisions I love this movie I think it's a classic along with the other movies that we talked about today but I haven't seen this movie in a couple years and watching it now gave me such a different perspective and maybe it's because what I've been through especially in my college years as a kid I always wanted to be Ferris Bueller but I now see Cameron as the most relatable character. He's the other side of that coin to Ferris Bueller. And this is Cameron's movie. 
way more than it is Ferris Bueller's. And it's one of those epiphanies that I had watching this movie. And man, I just fell in love with this movie so much more. You take away the jokes, you take away the plan that Ferris Bueller has and all his quips and his remarks and even the silly subplot with the principal, which I love, by the way. Uh, (laughs) And I'm just curious to listen to what everyone else has to say about this movie. Who doesn't want to be Ferris Bueller? Like, as soon as, like, that's the main takeaway from your first viewing is like, I want to be like him. (laughs) I want to be on a parade float in Chicago, lip syncing to the Beatles with all these showgirls around me. Like, who doesn't want to do that? The whole city's going crazy, everyone's singing, jumping along. That's the high of Ferris Bueller, but then you also get that low of Cameron's pivotal scene where he's like, you know what? That's fine. Uh, the car is wrecked, but that's fine. I'm finally going to use this as a catalyst to finally stand up to my dad. And that leap, it's weighing on him the entire movie. Like, okay, but we got to be, he's always worrying. He's so anxious. And him finally, like, facing that and, like, this is something that I'm going to have to stand up to or it's just going to eat me alive for the rest of my life. Yeah, like you said, it, it becomes Cameron's movie, uh, ultimately. This movie's great. It's so much fun. And I see why you picked it. This always is... I'm going back and forth between this and Breakfast Club for my favorite John Hughes movie. It, this one's just so much fun. Everything that happens in it, the the humor, the journey that these three go on. It's such a great time. Chris, are you a Ferris Bueller or Cameron Fry? I think in high school, I was very much a Ferris Bueller. But I think now in life, I'm sadly very Cameron. But like, <laughs> it's... um. I don't know. Like, whenever I think about Ferris Bueller, I think about a lot of my friends. Because I think a lot of my friends are Ferris Bueller's, like, to this day. Like, Ricky from Yikes is very Ferris Bueller. Um, (laughs) And, like, one of my best friends, Heather, is, like, such a Ferris Bueller as well. And it's like, man, they're so so cool. Like, I think those people are so cool. Also, I'm going to extend that to Ryan as well. I just have, like, a lot of cool friends. So when I think about Ferris Bueller, it just, it's like a ball of friendship. Because it just makes me think of, like, the, the whole dynamics between teenagers and when you're a kid and you feel like I can just do anything because you can do anything. And even at the age you're at now, you can do anything. Like, but just that when you're, when you're so young and you're like, I don't, no one can really control me. And it feels like that's what the movie kind of is the realization of everybody just being like, I can like call in sick. I can do all this shit and I can go into Chicago for the day and I can like convince my friend to do this. And he's, you know, because Ferris Bueller is basically a sociopath. <laughs> like in this movie, <laughs> throughout, on like numerous occasions. And it's sort of like, ah, he's so fun. And then the movie ends, it's like, wait. <laughs> he's like, he uh, did a lot of mean things. And, um, but you like, you're still in love with him. He's very endearing. He's kind of like an anti-hero, if you think about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's the original Deadpool. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> well, they did make that reference at the end of the first movie, right? Didn't they do a first Yeah, they did. Reference? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Lori, I know we had talked very briefly about this movie and how uh, you have a, not a hot take, I'm sure, uh, a different perspective on this movie, and I would love to hear it. Are you ready? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's a fucking dick. And I imagine the grown-up Ferris Bueller being that dick who's driving around his Tesla, going to Starbucks, you know, showing everybody his fancy watches. And he has that earpod. He's always on Bluetooth. Like, I'm sorry, what? What? He's that guy who's always talking on Bluetooth in line. He grew up, trust me, the, I'm like imagining the future Ferris Bueller. I'm like, dick, dick, dick. He does so many dick moves throughout this whole thing. I love Cameron. This is Cameron's story. 
and he's such a bad friend to Cameron and how he like manipulates the whole situation saying, oh, I did this for him because he needed this. No, you asshole. You're selfish. You don't care about what happens to your friends or even your girlfriend, Simone, when you're dragging her out of school because you know you're going to be out of here. You have a rich, you have a nice ass house. Parents who fucking have these fancy jobs. You have all this money. Oh, yeah. He's going to be just fine. And he knows it. I'm like, just total douchebag moves. Is it a fun movie? Yes. Do I love to watch it? Yes. But do I like the character Ferris Bueller himself? Absolutely not. <laughs> he is. I completely agree with Chris on the fact that he's a sociopath, completely narcissistic, completely self-involved. And he's one of those guys who, like, he went off to college and he was like, his. he's like totally the the college admission scam guy. You know, like his parents called and they made a donation to get him to the position that he wanted to get into. And you know he went. I would, counter, I would counter that by saying that he's definitely the guy that showed up to the first day of class and was like, I'm ready for school. And someone's like, have you heard of cocaine? And like he dropped out in, two, in, like, in like a couple of months. That's what I think mm-hmm. his is. Oh, yeah. yeah, is he get like, uh, I was thinking, like, he could either be, like, set for life and just be a rich douche his whole life and go scot-free, or... He can have the inverse where life just hits him like a train after high school, where he realizes, like, the harsh realities. There's a lot to Ferris, even, like, more of the heartfelt stuff is with Cameron, but there's a lot you can, like, pick apart with Ferris. Like, going off of the whole, like, he's selfish, I mean, he's talking to us the entire movie where he just looks in the camera and he's the only one who does that, where he's the only one looking us in the eye and he's telling the story, we're on it with him, and the the way that they break the fourth wall just in, emphasizes that more and it enhances it instead of just breaking the fourth wall just to break the fourth wall. The way that John Hughes uses that, it, it's it's genius. It's great. I just imagine like everything that he got away with in high school, you know, like he he's like, oh yeah, life moves pretty fast. Yeah, if you don't stop and look around, you might miss it. Cut to college and he's like, he discovers Rohypnol. This is a real easy way to get what I want at a frat party, you know, because he never had to face any consequences. It's like all those guys who are like, what do you mean? I'm white, I'm rich, and I go to this Ivy League school? You like, like, no, she wasn't that passed out. Like, that's that guy. <laughs> I will agree. I'm pretty sure Ferris Bueller's the type of guy to peak in high school, uh, definitely drop out of college. But I will say, you're wrong, wrong, because <laughs> Ferris Bueller is the best, bestest friend that you could ask for, especially for Cameron. Ferris Bueller saved Cameron, okay? Cameron needed Ferris. They're yin and yang. I bet you anything Cameron wasn't even sick that day. I bet you he was just having an episode where he's depressed. He even says, my father loves this car more than his wife. So imagine how he feels about his own son. I mean... Cameron needed Ferris Bueller that day. And I think he just needs him in life. Even Ferris Bueller says, oh, what's going to happen to Cameron? He's going to fall in love with the first girl he meets. They're going to have kids, have a marriage. And then he's just going to coast through life. He needed this day out in Chicago. They go to the art museum. They go to a parade. Ferris Bueller's bending over backwards to make Cameron's day. I mean... Cameron would have just lived his entire life afraid of his dad if it wasn't for Ferris Bueller. It took Ferris Bueller driving that Ferrari, that sick Ferrari, ramming up the mileage for Cameron to finally snap. 
Ferris Bueller baptized Cameron. He came out a new man. I mean, Ferris Bueller doesn't really change in the movie. Again, it's Cameron's movie. He has the arc. He has the entire, his entire persona changes from this one day out. I think we like to compare ourselves to Ferris Bueller, but I feel like Ferris Bueller himself is masking something and he knows, he knows he's not going to do anything with his life later on. Whereas Cameron's more courageous of a character because he doesn't hide his feelings, his depression even. He's upfront about it and he doesn't care. I, I think Ferris Bueller is just a friend that we would all need to kind of give us that pick me up. To uh, have us waste our inheritance on giving it to my dad so he can get a new car while I go to community college now. Like, that's what I see. I see the fact that any inheritance that Cameron had now is going to go straight to his dad. You know, I'm thinking about the long term. I'm thinking about at the end of Ferris Bueller and what's happening the next day. Yeah, the next day he would have stood up to his dad and have maybe a better relationship with his family. Or he would have just gone his entire life just sheltered and just afraid of his old man. Who wants to live a life like that? I think he could have done that without wrecking the car, though. <laughs> Forget the... It's, it's not about the car, Lori. It's about principle. I, I think that these characters both need, need... They need each other because I agree somewhat with what you're saying, Dylan. I don't think uh, Ferris Bueller should get all the credit, but uh, Cameron needs Ferris just like Ferris needs Cameron. Ferris needs someone to rein him in, and Cameron needs that character or that person to be like, hey live a little, you know, and uh, they're both self-destructive uh, when you kind of look at it. But if they have each other, then I think it'll be all right. Two sides of the same coin. I see both. I see like Lori's side and Dylan's side because it's <laughs> like it, they're they're you, you can get a little bit from it because like there could be something to be said that Ferris Bueller maybe because the movie does start off the way where he's like, I'm getting a day off. And then when it, it could be redirected the movie and his ethos throughout the film uh, for Cameron. But I will say this overall, anything like not siding with either of those things is that John <laughs> Hughes is great at making like these, these, these dramatic characters like Cameron that you could uh, spin any which way, but mostly to the downside of like the dramatics of the, the, the depression and kind of like how it's scoped and healed and like caused uh, throughout the films like Cameron he gets all this backstory but it's like you don't know his real pain and like we, there's no way that we can like replicate it or like or Hughes himself can replicate it but the way that Ferris Bueller brings that out of him as his friend is what makes the story it's what brings the heart out of the story and like same thing could be said with like Ducky in Pretty in Pink the same thing could be said with Dell in Plane Trains and Automobiles it's you have these like very heartbreaking characters that um, you need the other catalyst to really bring alive. And like, if you are somebody that's like really into writing, or really into storytelling, it's just, it's a beautiful character. It's a beautiful thing to see a, a writer or like a film be able to have these characters that singular, like singularity, if they were singular inside the film, it'd be like, these characters are annoying or these characters are stupid or super depressed and sad and they're very uninteresting. But you have characters like Ferris Bueller, you have characters, you know, um, and planes, trains, you have like, uh, you, you have these other characters that are able to express them even more so. That like makes them alive and makes them a lot more relatable in our lives. So I think if anything, like, Ferris Bueller Days Off just gives like a really great spotlight to characters like Cameron. That have since then have become more center, center stones inside films. Yeah, Alan Ruck, props to him. Uh, without his performance, yeah, I feel like 
Cameron's character just would have just been a dud in the movie. <laughs> uh, I believe so. I think what he brings to the table is great. Can we talk about the real MVP, though? Can we talk about the sister played by Jennifer Grey? I, I love her. Uh, I love her in this movie. She doesn't get enough credit, whereas we're arguing about Ferris and <laughs> Cameron. I think not enough people talk about Jeannie Bueller. We also get some cameos. I don't know if anyone noticed Louis Anderson. Yeah, Louis Anderson's one of the people holding flowers. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Love him. And oh, yeah, the principal and the secretary, Grace and Ed Rooney. I <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to touch Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey I know, Jones you can't like, talk about him. He's like, look, this is the thing. He's great in 80s films. It's just like, he's an awful person. He's a really awful, awful predator. Yeah. I can separate the art from the artist. <laughs> it's true. I still love Woody Allen. He's filmed. He's filmed. I was about to say, like, <laughs> And I won't shy away from talking about Kevin Spacey. His work. His work. May I just add, Woody Allen loves Diary of a Teenage Girl, by the way. He gave it four stars. What are you doing to me? <laughs> what? No! <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, we won't talk about Jeffrey Jones too much, but uh, can we talk about Grace, the actress who plays Grace? She's just great. I know she makes a small little cameo in Trains, Planes, and Automobiles. She's also one of the girls in Carrie, Blink and You'll Miss Her. In the original? Yeah. Big glasses. Mm hmm. Oh, wow. I want to write the sequel. Same. (laughs) Ferris Bueller uh, goes off. (laughs) (laughs) That's the- <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it, you, it, when they originally uh, were making it, though, John Hughes had a really hard time with Ferris Bueller's Day Off because I guess it was originally written a little bit darker and they mm. were playing with the idea of Cameron actually being suicidal. Mm. You know that scene where he falls into the pool? The original mm-hmm. was that he was supposed to drown. Yeah, it, it, at least an attempt, but it was, it, was, it was, they played it off like a joke, but in the original version, it was a little darker. And they had a really mm-hmm. hard time with Matthew Broderick and Jennifer uh, Gray's relationship because they became an item uh, in the film. Like, off, you know, they actually became boyfriend and girlfriend. And if you notice that final scene where she's letting him in the house, it, uh, John Hughes was getting very angry because it kept coming off as flirtatious and not as brother and sister because, of course, they were intimate at that time. And he was just like, y'all need to stop acting like boyfriend and girlfriend. Uh, I just want, uh, before we uh, stop talking about Ferris Bueller, uh, I just uh, want, it, uh, want to reiterate the point that uh, Matthew Broderick drunkenly killed two girls in Ireland. With Jennifer Grey from this movie. They went on vacation as soon as they wrapped this film. They were in Ireland. They were drunk. They were driving. And they killed someone. They killed two girls in Ireland. And uh, I feel like people just forget about that because he's still getting work. What's with all this dirty laundry with this movie? I feel like I made the wrong choice. <laughs> <laughs> Can't talk about him. Oh, he Movies killed her. Are subjective, and it's all about perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we're not. <laughs> oh, we're not sorry, ending the show sorry. yet. <laughs> but it's still one of my favorites, even uh, despite the behind the scenes that's going it's on. It's so fun. It really is, though. It, growing up, I I, I love the scene where he's in the parade. Despite all of my views on it, is it a fun movie? Absolutely. It's all feel good. I think we're all, in a way, trying to be like Ferris Bueller, just make the most of life. And deep down inside, we, we all we all feel like Cameron every, every once in a while. And you need both in life. You need a Cameron Fry and you need a Ferris Bueller in life. That's what I say. And that's why I think it's my, one of my favorite coming-of-age movies. 
All right. Well, I think that's it for us. I learned a lot from everyone, and I learned a lot from these films. I first want to thank our very special guest, Chris Olvera. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming, man. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I like this group a lot. So thank you. Yeah, sorry. Uh, if we scared you off, uh, I I totally get it. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. Uh, At me next time, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, Lori just had a gun under the table pointed at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, guys, I, I really appreciate all the support you guys give uh, the web series and stuff. So, uh, oh, we yeah, love yikes. I love, uh, listening to this. Yeah, I appreciate that. I love listening to the podcast. So I'm happy that we're able to work together. Yeah, yeah, appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we have some more collaborations down the road. And I cannot wait for the next episode of Yikes. I'm always patiently yet enthusiastically waiting. Where can we find you? Um, if you need to find me, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chris Internets, uh, just with no H, you know, Mexican Chris Internets. And then um, if you want to watch Yikes, um, you can find it on YouTube at Yikes with Basic Cable Productions on the sideline. And um, if you want to follow us on Instagram, it's going to be the land of yikes on Instagram. We have Instagram exclusives like commentary uh, right now, as well as our new drops are going to be coming up this month. And I'll be sure to put those links in our description below so you can get all caught up with this great web series. Yikes. Again, I can't praise it enough. Just thank you, Chris, uh, for all your hard work that you've been putting in us theater folks. We especially also knowing how film can go. Just thank you for all your hard work and to the rest of the trio as well. We know how hard it is to just the concept of film and then executing it and all the elements that go into it. We know it's really hard and it's just remarkable that you're doing it. And uh, it's great to see local talent really showcase who they are. So thank you. Thank you, Dylan. Um, I want to probably extend it for Ricky and Ryan by saying thank you. And then also, just especially from Ryan, he'd probably say hello. So there's that. Hey to Ryan. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to the rest of the Yikes trio. We love you guys. Yeah, movies are miracles and y'all are doing the Lord's work. For the rest of you listening out there, what's your favorite coming of age movie? Is it one of our picks? Or let us know. There's so many to choose from. Mm -hmm. I know we mentioned a few here. But you can do that on our social media platforms at Cinema Show Live on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can listen to us on many platforms. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. There's a thing called Stitcher. If you're listening to us on there, cool. I also just saw that we have some international listeners from uh, Portugal and Germany. So shout out to the international listeners. That's pretty cool. And or maybe you just want to shout out. Either way, you're all part of the panel as much as we are. Lori, where can we find you? You can find me in Corpus on Friday buying merch. Um, <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter, Lori underscore Guajardo. And Jackson. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jackson underscore DML. And you can find our composer, Dario. He did the music for us at Dorito is the name. He couldn't be here with us. Yeah, I wanted to hear what his favorite coming-of-age story was. Actually, I was going to get him on this show this time around, and he didn't even show up. He didn't even show up. Oh, Chris, what's your favorite Dorito flavor? Favorite Dorito flavor? I'd probably go with, like, spicy nacho. Ooh, that's Ooh. a good one. Okay. Or or the yeah. new Tapatio flavor they have. Ooh. Oh, I wasn't aware of that one. It's very good. Ooh. 
keeping it spicy. I love it. And you can follow me on my Twitter. That's it. Don't follow me anywhere else. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DylanMM5. That's right. D-Y-L-A-N-M-M-5. This is The Cinema Show. Remember, all films are subjective and it's all about perspective. Have a great day and a better tomorrow. Bye.